The Keyboard Chronicles is proudly supported by Elk Electronic in Australia. Elk Electronic provides high quality service and repair of synthesizers and keyboards and also aims to encourage community interaction and learning through meetups and workshops. Find us on Facebook and Instagram or check out elkelectronic.com.au for more about us. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to episode 35 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. And I'm even more pleased that my brother-in-arms, Paul Bindig, is back on the saddle. Paul, how's the road been for you? Oh, it's been great. We've been super lucky to play at some amazing venues around Australia, but nothing is better than chatting with you and our keyboard playing <laughs> oh, guests. You're a charmer. I do. And I think I'd be taking the tour around Australia myself, but no, I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> um, so no, great to have you back. Um, our guest this time is uh, Josh Weinstein, um, who's a working composer, arranger, producer, and also, you know, obviously a pianist, organist, keyboard player, originally from New York, but now based uh, in San Diego on the West Coast. Um, he's had uh, three amazing solo albums, um, and Paul and I sort of uh, have become friends with Josh, so to speak, on the musicplayer.com forums, which is how I got to know his work and admire his work. Um so, yeah, he's, he's had some great success with those solo albums, received airplay on nearly 300 uh, radio stations worldwide. He's um, charted on CMJ and was licensed by MTV. Um, so he's he's active also just for something different as a sideman with a bunch of acts and also a feature performer in nightclubs, concert stages and recording studios. Um, and he also um, appears on albums and in videos for artists in multiple genres, as you'll hear when we, we go through the interview. Um, so when he's not performing a recording, he also teaches college courses on American popular music, Western classical music, and a variety of world music practices. And we, we talk a little bit about that as well. So absolute pleasure talking with Josh. And um, I hope you enjoy um, the interview as much as we did. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. It's from sunny California, isn't it? It's from California, Southern California. Yeah, That's San right. Diego yeah. or something. San, San Diego, yeah. you got it. Yep, wow. as far south as you can get in California and still be in the U.S. That's right. <laughs> no, lovely yeah. to have you on board. So um, uh, last episode I said to the person we interviewed, um, I'm not going to ask you how you're keeping busy because it's um, more you need a holiday. Um, it's, it feels like it might be a bit of that case with you, Josh. You've certainly um, kept busy, and I've looked at your gig calendar going forward. And geez, you are going to need a holiday by the end of the year. Uh, it's uh, it is populating again. I have actually some mixed feelings about it because uh, that you know, 15 months off, um, where music went back to being just a, a thing that lives somewhere, you know, in our in our physical real estate. Uh, changes a little bit of how I view some of those commerce gigs. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it how it um, how it shapes up going forward. But yeah, things are things are starting to fill in. Yeah, good. Yeah. 
And so let, let's get a bit of a pot, potted history uh, of you, Josh. So tell us, you know, about your upbringing and what got you full on into uh, music. I was born during the Civil War, uh, 18, 1863. <laughs> and, uh, uh, no, I, I, uh, I was actually, you know, proverbial born into a musical family. Um, on Dad's side, he was actually sort of a... Uh, Danny Kay, I don't know if that name means anything to you, sort of a song and dance yeah, yeah. guy, comedian. Sure uh, and then uh, mom was a professional musician and her mother was a, a professional musician. And so there was just, you know, uh, there was music everywhere. And I, I don't I don't ever remember not playing, you know, in one form or another. And do you sort of have, you, you have a day job, Josh, or are you pretty much full-time musician? <laughs> Uh, full-time music related. So yeah. I teach, I teach college, uh, and I teach private, uh, instrument instruction. When I teach college, it's not, it's not how to play. It's, uh, uh elements of history and then, uh, music history though. And then, um, when I teach private instruction and then gig at night and before the pandemic, it was about, uh, equal thirds, you know, triple hustle, 30, you know, about 200 gigs a year, an equal amount of teaching and an equal amount of college. And then during the pandemic, teaching attrited and, and live performance obviously wasn't a factor, but I'm happy to say that the college teaching picked up during that time. So, uh, it, you know, I can't say it was a wash, but it, it didn't hurt as bad as it could have, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Josh, what drew you into the world of music academia? How did that all come about? Ah. Uh, Oh, tough question. How long? I, we're going to stop at one, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, you know, going way back, I'd never envisioned not being a musician. And um, and at somewhere along the line, I uh, through a series of day jobs, I ended up um, uh, working full time in advertising, writing ads and uh had this sort of crisis of conscience uh, prompted by a very specific event and uh, realized that wasn't how I wanted to go down. You know, if a bus hit me, that, that wasn't the resume I wanted to leave. And so I went back into music full time and really just needed a way to um, to make sure that, for example, if there was, not that I foresaw a global pandemic or anything, but if there was something that wiped away the performance opportunity or some aspect of it, that I could still be working in the field. And so oh, about 12 or, yeah, about 12 years ago, I think we packed up, left New York, and I came out to do a PhD program here in California. Yep. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Just on the subject of, of moving from New York to California, yeah, I, I'm interested in, from a a performing musician's perspective how is the experience of being on the east coast and the west coast differentiated that's a fantastic question uh, have you spent a lot of time in the states well uh, that's very a, a very, very informed question let's say it again uh, yeah. <laughs> very yeah, very little only as a tourist but um i, I know there's a the distinct and disparate sort of scene there and mm. i'm just curious on your perspective of it yeah, there really, there really is. So in New York, you know, uh, everybody's um, uh, goal-oriented and uh, sort of take no prisoners. And so music is, is a career, and it's done by people who love what they do, but it's uh, it's very much in line with the rest of how you might picture New York, where, you know, whatever the next thing is, that's what, you, that's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. So in New York, uh, I tended to see any musicians that I played with at gigs, you know, and that was it, and you'd kind of chart your progress against other people. In California... Um, the, it's almost the, the flip side. Uh, I, I can barely think of a friend in my circle 
who is not a musician outside of, you know, a friend outside of music who is not who is not somebody I met through music. So mm-hmm. very different feeling to what we do here. It's a smaller scene. Uh, it's not L.A. We're south of L.A. Uh, there is a, a tiny bit of, um, you know, second in line syndrome, uh, mm-hmm. but also stacked with talent. Everybody playing up in L.A., you know, this is this is within the the the, um, you know, concentric circles away from that city. So uh there, there's not necessarily the sense of um, someone's going to drive over your mom to get the to get the gig before <laughs> you do. Uh, uh, there's there's differences, you know, in general between the East Coast and West Coast. Um, some of them positive, some of them negative. Lifestyle is way better out here. Uh, um, people are maybe a little less direct out here, which I which apparently I've adopted since I stuck maybe in front in front of that absolutely <laughs> true sentence. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, but uh, um, it's a very uh, tightly knit community here in in the professional context and then also in the personal context. And that wasn't true in New York. OK. In, yeah. And um, I mean, please excuse Paul for asking these broad questions that require extensive answers. I want to do something a little bit more simple, which is, um, Josh, um, how is American yeah. music defined in your mind, given those differences? Just a yes you or no are... answer is fine. <laughs> I'd like to phone a friend. <laughs> uh, um, you're asking somebody who, who teaches American music, so that's going to be that's going to be a yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, American music. I think it's some intersection between the myths that we tell about ourselves which would land us sort of in the country music realm Mm -hmm. and the truths with an s at the end that we don't like to admit about ourselves which puts us more in the pop music realm and the truth is somewhere in between those two universes the god country and truck universe of maybe country and the um you know, godless, uh, no country. What are we going to do in the flatbed of the truck after the show? <laughs> universe of of uh, of you know pop music or R and B. So uh, I I I want to say that one thing that's true about American music is that if you can make a sound sell, you can invent a genre. Money speaks, and so even though there's preconception, if you can show that something is profitable, you can, you can, we can have a new genre and call that American music. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a great answer from someone that obviously knows what they're talking about. So, and and obviously, I'm assuming, yeah, an American's perception of their music depends on exactly what you've talked about, and from external to America, it's it's the what we see over here. I mean, I'm I'm a massive Springsteen fan, as our listeners all. Um, commiserate that they have to put up with me talking about him all the time but um, he obviously was one of the key you know exports of the 1980s and 70s and 80s so he represents America to a lot of people outside of America and I'd argue there are some worse role models you could have but yeah it's an interesting um, debate. Right and it depends you know it depends how old the person you're asking might be and uh, uh, so you know, Springsteen was very much at the front of our radar. I'm we're we're probably almost exactly age peers, and yeah. so he you know he was definitely in the pantheon, particularly on the East Coast. One thing I can tell you is, um, 
you know, out here in California, uh, people know the name, for example, Billy Joel. I just played a wedding last night and they did their custom version of, you know, for the longest time. But I, I can never remember walking into any business in the 12 years I've been out here and hearing a Billy Joel song oh, wow. playing on the on the on the speakers and when we fly to new york the first thing you hear on any radio station <laughs> is bruce springsteen and billy joel because they're you know they're east coast guys and so uh that it it also depends geographically on who represented that region for sure yeah so lots more eagles in la and and um california of that genre of that era sorry yeah yeah that's exactly right that's well well put yep how do you come by this? Uh, how do you come by this detailed knowledge of the geography of this uh, crazy country? <laughs> oh, we just love it. Uh, we, it's all we ever see on TV, Josh. TV and movies. Yeah, it can't be, it okay. can't be avoided. It cannot be avoided. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Yeah, Eagles, and then um, uh, you know some of the some of the uh, grunge bands or or uh, pop pop punk bands of you know '90s and 2000s. That was kind of a California scene. So. Not grunge, but pop punk. Hmm. Yeah. What about you? What's what's Australian music? Oh, you're not meant to ask questions like that. Well, no, we, you... we ask the questions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, you, you get uh, you can cut out anything you want to after, but I still get to put you on the spot. That's right. right. <laughs> I mean, I think I think you nailed it really well, Josh. It's what people perceive, and and there is definitely well, there's not really geographical, really. Paul, is there? You could argue a Sydney Melbourne divide with some music. Yeah, and there was. Just like our accents, Josh, there's very little between each part of the country. It's it's, it's very, very hard to, to say there's a, a regional variance too much in what Australians like. But, you know, we, we absorb a lot of cultural influences from the States. Um, yeah. And it's you know, interesting hearing what you said about Springsteen um, or Billy Joel, where, you know, Billy Joel is incredibly popular here in Australia, mm. um, which, which is interesting to hear you say you'd never heard it in a shop on the West Coast because you'd definitely hear it in a shop here, no, no problem at all. <laughs> really um, interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I do find that really interesting, yeah, for sure. Um, but I think, and we've got our own sort of pop rock history from around that era too. Um, I mean, if you, if you ask the average um, um, American of our age, it'll be in excess, it'll be ACDC, it'll be Little River Band. Little River Band, I was going to yeah. say, yeah. And beyond okay. that, it, you would struggle to get an answer. Yeah, which is... Huh. The, oh, Midnight Oil, sorry. Midnight Oil would be the other okay, one. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. forgot about it. Yeah. Yep. So, Josh, from your... Like, I oh, guess what's, the guy, years... what's the guys with the hats? Uh, men, uh, men at Work, isn't that... Isn't oh, that oh, Men yeah, at Work. Yeah, Men yes. at Work, of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot, a lot of really popular Australian rock bands around that time that did not yeah. make hardly any impact overseas at all. So someone from the States wouldn't have heard of them unless they were very, very clued into the music side of things here. Right. Josh, I was interested in, um, you sort of mentioned in your formative years, you grew up in a very musical family and, and so being a musician was, was kind of the thing. I'm interested in, in how you developed as a as a young person, maybe first striking out on your own and, and what sort of projects you got into and, and how that led to who you are now as a musician. Sure. Um, well, you know, we had we had a piano in the house. Uh, uh, I had I had a good ear or, you know, or it's just around enough music that um, the the process of hearing something and trying to make the that sound that song happened myself was instant i never remember you know deciding to try to play something mm. almost from the beginning um i wrote i wrote music uh and through high school uh, i wrote music and i played uh, i was in the music wing you know 
uh, everybody spent their their high school secondary uh, you know ed education years somewhere and mine was mine was in the music wing I was at the piano for four years then mm -hmm. um, I played in bands I played in uh, at the time now it would be called the classic rock band and then it just would have been a rock <laughs> a rock band it was just <laughs> contemporary music for the time uh, and in college I did a lot of shows uh, with original music and uh, continued to do that uh, to some extent after college, but ended up playing in a, um, you know, in a whole bunch of cover bands because that's what was, you know, that's that's what paid at the time. That, that's what paid the exact same amount that it pays now at the time. The exact same <laughs> dollar amount, not the inflation. No, I think not, that's, not that, accounting. that's a point of international agreement, Josh. That's yeah. never changed. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I ended up doing, uh, you know, m much more cover work then although i had i always had original songs on our on our set list whatever group i was in i always had one or two in the in the mix um and then uh as i said i sort of uh um lost it uh, at a certain point i spent most of my 20s probably up into my into my early 30s doing that so 140 150 years ago and then i uh i ended up with the kind of job that didn't allow for you know going out and gigging at night and i had this piano in my in my loft in in um in manhattan you know i always had a piano and i i had this piano against the wall and i have this clear memory one day of sitting at it and you know just to just to play and not not being able to you know not not feeling connected at all to the sound or the piano or the instrument or the technique or you know the mechanism any part of it and thinking, I guess, you know, I guess I'm just one of those guys who used to play music. Like, this is, you know, this is what happens, I guess, in life. Like, yeah. you, you know, you, you think you're going to go on one path and you end up on another path. And I'm one of these guys who's going to, you know, tell a fat old drunk story at a, you know, in a bar about how I used to play music when I was younger. <laughs> and, um, and you know, I mean, I, I'll be a little oblique about it, but, you know... Uh, a, th a thing with a capital T happened and I had, I really had to reconsider what, what I wanted to leave if I left. And what I realized was that all that time chasing the money for the real job was a complete waste of time. I sort of did it for the props and it made my family proud and they got to say, you know, oh, he writes ads or whatever, but it, it had no meaning to me whatsoever sure. beyond, you know, beyond the, the, um, you know the little check mark on the, on the you know that I got yeah. to show the little check mark on the report card that I could bring home for mom and dad. So yeah, uh, and I I decided I wasn't gonna I was gonna go down swinging and and went went back to music full time. And the first thing I did is made a, uh, an album, and only played um, or just about only probably ninety percent played original shows all around New York, and then started to take some uh, sideman work. Um, in the city to to make extra money because uh, it's, it's not like people were throwing a whole bunch of cash at you know at songwriters, and um, and then when we moved out to California when it came out for the uh, for the PhD program, um, I sort of landed in a couple of opportunities that had me working as a sideman uh, almost exclusively. I did some original maybe twice a year, three times a year. I would do original shows, but over the years, um, you know, I've ended up building a. a fairly heavy freelance schedule uh and to after after you know wasting all the airtime on that to to get right to the point of your question how does that define me as a musician one thing that i will say is having spent that time as a songwriter which i still am uh 
I, I have a really strong preference for playing other people's original music. And I, I, if I had to tell you one thing that I feel comfortable that I do well, it's that I can climb inside their head as a composer and think about what they might like to hear on this song. Like, why would they have wanted a piano player or a keyboardist on this gig? You know, what sounds can I sort of uh, telegraphically, you know, decide, you know, crawl inside their brain and decide that they wanted to hear there. So that's, that's, I think, a factor in how I approach when I play other people's original music. Yeah, so that's fascinating. So would you say, Josh, that's, uh, I don't want to have to equate passions, but would you equate that, yeah, getting in another songwriter's head and what to play is as big an interest for you as writing your own stuff. Yeah, it's hard, right? It's hard to hard to equate because uh, that that I have an option about, and writing my own stuff, I don't really have an option about. It's yeah. just sort of a thing a thing that happens whether you know whether I want it to or not. But absolutely, you want to you know you want to uh, make my day. Send me a text with your um, you know with the last song you were working on yesterday that you wanted feedback on. I'm going to listen to it today, and I'm going to you know text you back immediately with you know, input impressions. And, and when you tell me it's time to record it or to go play it, I'm going to, I'm going to say yes. And I probably won't even ask you what it pays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I can break you out of that habit with my stuff, but we'll see how we <laughs> go. Um, so let's talk about your songwriting approach then, Josh. You've obviously had um, three albums, which, um, and not just as research for this podcast, I've enjoyed listening to them over a period of, of months. Um, so talk, talk about, you know, your, your songwriting approach and how it's evolved. I think it was 2003, your first album, and then has, has followed on since then. Yeah. Um, I mean, you write, you know, the first album you make is every song, you know, you ever wrote basically. And then, um, uh, and then you have to now make a whole bunch of new songs and, uh, that's when that's when you really have to decide what your approach is going to be. And I don't think I actually had. Whoops, sorry, well, no, nothing to see here. Good thing the video is off. I don't think uh, I don't think I really had to. Uh, I don't think it was fully formed uh, for me until. So the second one was Brooklyn is sinking. The third mm -hmm. one was uh, was uh, love and alcohol. And I don't. I think it was love and alcohol that I um, made. Uh, the record that I just wanted to have, I, I just wanted to make stuff that I, that I would want to yeah. listen to, you know, the, the, um, the first one that was just all I knew how to do. Those were the songs I did. The second one, I had some sound worlds I liked, but it was love and alcohol really where I was like, no, nah, actually this is, I don't really care at this point. I'm getting older. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to make a record that I want that I would go back and listen to afterwards. Yeah. And so, I, yeah. And we'll definitely link to um, all the albums, but yeah, Love and Alcohol is brilliant and um, uh, can't recommend it highly enough. And I, because I, I don't want to um, make a novelty of it, but any any album that has a song that's called Fuck His Fuck on it is, is yeah, I don't know why, worth I, a listen. I love it. It's a great song. I, uh, I, I'm surprised it didn't get more airplay. I, yeah. I really don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, Hey, hey, uh, Josh, without wanting yeah. to blow too much smoke up your bum, um, your lyrics are excellent. Where do they come from? Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I've, I, um, you know, I was an English major in college, and uh, um, I, I put a lot of thought into uh, catching the voice or the, the vibe or the approach and making sure that the that nothing's filling syllables, you know, or that nothing just was there because, um, 
because it sounded clever. I try to I try to make sure that each of those syllables has a reason to be there. So for me, um, really, where where the lyrics come from is from spilling out a whole bunch of stuff while I'm writing the song, and then spending weeks or months, honestly, sometimes just chipping away at the lyrics until I until I like how they how they flow. Yeah, right. I think you comment about the no wasted syllables. That that's I hadn't thought of it like that, but as you say it, that's how I feel when I listen to your music. Mm. And for our listeners, one of the things I love about Josh's lyrics is I feel like the cadence of them can often add to the yeah. the, the the musicality of the song. It's it's very hard to describe, but uh, certainly have a listen to Josh's stuff. As David said, we'll link that. But it's uh, yeah, I really appreciate good lyrics, and yours are wonderful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's uh, how do you sing it otherwise? You know, I mean, at least mm. so uh, you know if you if you're just filling if you're just filling uh, you know beats, um, I, I'm not able to pull that off as a performance. Like I, I have to I have to believe in I have to believe in it, and so it and because I have a very active um, little tiny abusive bastard living in my brain that says that sucks, <laughs> that sucks, that sucks, that sucks, you know. Uh, I, it takes me a while until until I can shut the fucker up. So that's so sure, uh, sure. You know, yeah, that's that's the process, really. Yeah, shutting the fucker up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, it, it certainly works from an output musical output perspective. It's it's great. I appreciate it's, that. Thank you. Moving on to something a little bit divergent. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about Ram On? I can. Uh, uh, first of all. Yeah. So the, uh, Fernando Perdomo, a producer um, up near L.A., um, is, worked with Denny Sewell, the, dr- the drummer, Paul McCartney's drummer, to put together a song for song um, updating or re- I don't I don't quite know how you call it. Remake, update, tribute, um, you know, note for note, track for track with some sensibility of the of the players, uh, including the singles. And um, he asked if I'd play. uh Originally, Whirly and Rhodes on a couple of tracks, and then I added a little synth to one of the tracks. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, he said, can you do it? And I said, let me think. Yes. <laughs> I wasted no time saying absolutely. I sent some tracks off. And here's the rest of what I want to say to you. Okay, this is, this is <laughs> you're never going to get anyone to, to, uh, to admit something like this on, <laughs> on air, however big the air is. If you held me to the fire and told me that Putin was going to serve me a delicious dessert. Don't pay any attention to the, you know, to the little pill that's floating in it. Uh, tell the truth. I cannot swear that I hear a note that I, that I played yeah. when I listened to it. <laughs> I, 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 I can't. I mean, I'm so happy. I'm on the credits and it's on, it's definitely going to go on my bio and, and I adored this album, the original, and I'm so glad that I got to, you know, kind of nudge up against it, but, it, but I can't swear to you, you can hear a thing that, oh yeah, you can hear one thing. You can hear, um, pop, pop, pop the popcorn on, uh, another day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can hear the little pop, pop, pop. So sad. Pop, pop, pop. There's a little, there's a little synth popcorn in there, and uh, I think that's me. I can't swear to you. I did that. I did a part. I did. I played that part, and uh, I'm pretty sure that that one lasted. But if you ask me to put my head against the speaker and hear the whirly and the roads that I, <laughs> the tracks I did, I, I can't. I can't hear it. <laughs> that's funny. 
but yeah, it's yeah. not and it's not as if you're not able to pick out what you played. So yeah, if you're not hearing it, probably no one else is. Yeah, yeah, it was in there for a while. It was in. I heard it in. Uh, in he sent a rough version of it, and I was like, oh, cool, sweet. You know, I can still hear it. And then, and then maybe I saw the writing on the wall or something. Because then, uh, then when it came out, I'm you know, I'm like, check it out, kids. I'm on this record. And uh, no, I'm not. I don't think I am. <laughs> that is gold. And. Um, I mean, probably related to that, Josh, I mean, given the diversity of styles and projects and you've talked about how you love getting in the head of other songwriters, um, if you're playing or listening purely for your own pleasure, what, what, where do you go? Like, what, how do you, you do it, given just you're so diverse in your own approach? Um, I don't know that I... If, if I'm playing uh, at all where it's not um, purpose-oriented... Uh, I'm specifically not assigning any, well, no, I should back up. Yeah, sometimes I'll pull out some music, some whatever, it might, actually any any music so that I can keep the muscle loose of, you know, reading and getting stuff through my fingers and playing things that I haven't played before, you know, in, in different orders than I use, you know, than I might be used to using my fingers or whatever. But if I'm just sitting at the, at, at a, you know, at a piano, um, in 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 present tense i'm this is going to get a little metaphysical but i'm actually sort of specifically not trying to call it anything because as soon as i tell myself i'm there to write a song i never will and i don't even know if i am uh and so it's more just kind of trying to separate myself from any sounds i'm making so i can hear them back as if somebody else made them and then start to see if there's something that might be in there uh song wise yeah, that's great. I don't. Think that's, that's not too metaphysical at all. I think that's that's very pragmatic. Um, all right. So now we're going to have the dreaded gig rig, uh, the the rig discussion, Josh. And I mean, I've only seen a couple of clips of you live, and I can't imagine the that you're you know super obsessed with you know the exact key bed and everything you're playing because you managed to pull off great music no matter what you do but i'm sure you still got preferences what, what what's your go-to rig and what are you using at the moment that you love <clears throat> thank you actually yeah i spend a lot of time obsessing over a very particular aspect of my rig which is how small can i still yes. play a good a good gig with yes. so uh, i do i i i can set up and tear down in uh about i can set up in about three minutes uh for most gigs if i i mean if if i'm showing off you know yeah. and uh um so I play uh, the the uh, Nord Stage Three uh, Compact because uh, I do a lot of stuff where I'm playing organ mm. and um, but almost no gigs where I only play organ. So I want obviously I want everything that board has to offer, which is I can play EP and clav and synth and mm. still get to still get to play a, you know a reasonably convincing organ. And uh, I do I do probably sixty to seventy percent of my gigs with one board. Um, and, and actually maybe even that percentage, maybe oh, it sounded like Trump and I bet we can make it 400%. So <laughs> I, I think, I think it might be, uh, I think it could even be higher. I don't remember cause I've only played two gigs since the pandemic's been over. So, but I, I was, you know, m most of the time I'm trotting out of the house with one board, uh, for a gig because I have it set up in a way that I can do most things on the fly. Cause most of what I do, I have to just decide to do on the fly. I have to hear the song and decide on, you know, what the keys are going to be or what's going to happen behind it. And, and, um, 
so I, I need the versatility uh, that 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 the stage three compact gives me because I can get organ out of it too. Uh, last night, yesterday, I just played a wedding. Weddings are two board gigs. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have as much freedom to decide I want to play organ on a tune that's supposed to have synth or whatever. So, um, to be honest with you, I don't much care what the second board is. Right now, I'm playing a Roland FA06. Mm-hmm. It's a workstation. It's actually not uh, um, not ideal as a as a <clears throat> uh, a live board. Because um, it, it's not so easy to just reach your hand up and, and make the changes you want to make. So anything that I want to do on the fly, I tend to do on the Nord. And then I set up a, a studio set on the FA6 with some synths I know I might like, uh, a different organ in case I want to just reach up and pad something, um, some EPs, again, in case I'm doing something on the Nord and want to make sure I've got continuity. So I run down a studio set of some of some second board sounds that I've already made and know I like. Uh, but my, my rig is most often one board, and it's the Nord Stage 3 Compact. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hearing you on the lightness. The lighter, the better. The lighter, the better. Yeah, exactly. Why, oh, why not? Why don't, I mean, why shouldn't we get to make fun of the drummers? Why should we? Why should we be? Why should we be on the receiving end? You know, of the of the setup and tear down. It's well, about time. This is well, this is not just a feeling. This is a movement. I need you guys with me on this. Oh, this is why we, I can't sell my damn Kronos. It's too bloody yeah. heavy. <laughs> yeah, we can all get behind that, Josh. I think we can definitely start something. It's, uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> we can all get behind that. And I reckon too, when you if you have to squeeze into a real small stage space, the smaller your footprint, yeah. the better. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I do, I do. In order to make that work, it's not like you can just take the Nord off the rack and do it. I do spend a lot of time setting all the live patches up, so yeah. that, for example, my mod wheel. Um, I mean, I'm sitting right next to it now, so I can tell you, my first live patch is piano, uh, unless I stick the mod wheel up, and then it's organ. So now I've got two instruments, oh, you know. And cool. the next live, mm. the next live is electric piano, and the, if the mod wheel's up, it's organ, and so on. And I try to set before a gig. I try to set that organ up the same across all my five, um, whatever the, the, the wheel down option is, so mm-hmm. that, let's just say I, I decided I didn't like piano, I want, you know, I want Whirly on this one, that way the organ doesn't surprise me you know, with some preset that I left last time. It's the same yep. one I was expecting to get. So I can, I can usually get like 10, that sort of gives me 10 instruments off the backs, bat, so I have piano, uh, EP, I've got a clav on there, I've got a cheesy FM piano, and I've got, um, I forget what the fifth one is, but another bread and butter uh, in the live. Yeah, yeah, no, makes, makes perfect sense. Yeah. While you're dispensing wisdom, Josh, <laughs> based, based on all your experience and you know multiple performance engagements, what would be key lessons you'd pass on to other players maybe starting out or wanting to be effective uh, in a performance sense? Don't be a dick. Yes. Would start. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, re- really, it depends on your market, I guess. But uh, um, I think there's a pretty wide range of acceptable good. I guess I could just stop there. Of, of acceptable goodness, acceptable quality in a player. And the X factor is, do people want to spend any time with you? Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the biggest. Uh, I do teach... I do teach um, you know, uh, I teach a fair number of working musicians uh, 
keyboards. So maybe they're singers or guitar players or whatever. And then I teach some who are right on the threshold of wanting to play live. And the, 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 I guess the biggest thing, the thing I say most often in different contexts is that you have to ask the song what it wants. You can't, you can't just, you can't just say, this is how I play this song. You have to just be in the moment and ask the song what it wants right there. Did it want that? Do you need to, I know you wanted to fill there, but did the song want to fill there? Mm -hmm. You know, and anyone who thought you were great based on that fill is outnumbered by the people who were distracted by the fact that you just raised your hand when somebody else was already talking. So uh, I, I think that's probably the, the biggest thing is just always be prepared to abandon whatever you, you had in mind for when the song tells you it wants something else. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. I like the it. Next one's, the next one's a, a bit of a standard question that we ask all our guests, which is, can you share with us your most memorable live train wreck experience? <laughs> um, we, we just had one. And no, no pressure, Josh, just, and you won't have heard this because it's not been released yet, but our last guest um, had to front up <laughs> in front of a 50-piece orchestra conducted by Maurice Jarre and asked to do a, a lengthy synth piece with no warning and no context. So if you can beat that, I'll be impressed. <laughs> uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that as soon as we stop talking, I'm going to go like, how did you not tell him this classic story of when <laughs> X happened? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a story that I just told... Um, at a, at a rehearsal, it's not, it was a, a wreck in the station before the train left the station. And that, that was this. Um, I, I got hired to do a, a wedding gig and uh, the guy who music directed it um, just knew the, knew the people in the, you know, knew the people getting married. And so he volunteered to put the band together and it was a whole bunch of stuff I'd never played and some stuff out of my wheelhouse and, uh, I probably, you know, contacted him like five times with questions. Are you sure? You know, can you send the keys? I couldn't go to the first rehearsal. And so I said, just give me everything I need to know uh, to make this work. And, you know, send the keys. You guys have already rehearsed. Um, you know, just make sure. I know they made some key adjustments. Just make sure I've got everything I need to know. So he sent over the keys. And out of the, you know, 30 songs, probably like 23 of them were, were in the key of C. Wow. So the list of songs all said C C C C C C, and I and I wrote them and said, um, "Are you sure this is right? These are all in C. I know that you changed keys, but this would put melodies pretty far apart." Yeah. And uh, yeah. and he said, "No, no. I checked. I checked. I've got it. I looked. We. I double checked. You're golden. We got this." And so I show up, and <laughs> none of those are the are the right keys because what he had done was to look at his iReal charts and notice that there was nothing in the key signature for the charts on the songs. Oh, no. And so he called them all the key of C. Oh, wow. So, so I was utterly unprepared. I mean, I, I didn't know what... And I, I spent every song trying to, trying to track down in my head what key I thought they were playing <laughs> in, let alone transpose, you know, and I had some splits set up and of course it was a gig with all sorts of horn parts where oh. I had... You know, I had the keyboard, you know, set up so I could do horns over here and something else in the left hand. And uh, I'd say that one qualifies. It it's, does. It's not... That qualifies yeah, and delivers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. God. Yeah. I've just, I've got in a cold sweat. Um, <laughs> that love it. And um, so in the coming year, Josh, before we hit you with yeah. the last couple of questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
what, what are you up to aside from 4,000 gigs? You you planning any solo <laughs> album work or anything like that? Or Yeah, I've, for the last... Um, uh, I, I'm working on an album to come out this year, which is what I've said for probably the last six years. So anything I say to you is going to be a lie about that. I think I think it's coming out and I don't. It's it's I've, I think I hold the record for longest, you know, time interval between <laughs> between album and follow up. Uh, I, I I have far more than an album's worth of material that I've been itching to get down and life keeps stepping in in one way or another. So I keep I, I spent the pandemic thinking that would be my pandemic project. And, um, you know, th- it turned out that thinking it would be the project was my pandemic project that I didn't, you know, that I didn't I didn't ever get to it. So uh, I think so. I keep thinking so. I'm playing some I'm doing a lot more um, uh gigs where I'm playing my own material and that'll probably that'll probably be the impetus that I need to to make it real um I've I've been doing some you know some studio stuff I I love that um I I like all of us you know that stuff that used to come in through our ears you know we're we're old enough we had to wear the big you know the big ass airplane Mm -hmm. you know the stuff Mm -hmm. the stuff they put on to to land airplanes you know as our as our headphones and that's still how that's um that's still where all my happy you know my happy sounds come from is is you know listening inside a recording and you know discovering what's in there and being delighted by you know, by what came next that I didn't know was coming. And so getting to getting to record for people, um, it is sort of a, a, a happifying closed loop for me on that, yeah. you know, on that count. Yeah, good call. Um, yeah. And then the, the two brain teaser questions to, to wrap up, um, Josh, one, the first one is tag a keyboard player. So a keyboard player or three that you would love to hear interviewed on the show yourself. Ben Ma. Yeah, look, you can you can add your name to the damn list for that one. I've tried. Yeah. I've tried. Um, Steve, Steve Naive. I'd love to hear Steve Naive. I, I've approached him. I've approached once, but it's been a while. I may try that again. Okay, and then um, what about what about Steve Nathan? I'd love to hear him talk about the. I, I, the- yeah, so um, Steve, if you ever listen to these, I've attempted to message you <laughs> twice on the forums. And I've never gotten a response. So yes, uh, agreed. Yeah, I mean, th- those are people where I'd be—I'd love to hear process. Uh, you know, uh, f- going back, you know, last to first. I'd—I'd I'd love to—I'd love to hear S- Steve Nathan just brain dump yeah, yeah. on the process of how you approach a tune when you record and how you know what's going to sound good and what you've learned after these years of, you know, what a producer is going to like to hear and and That's that. Right. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. No, he's definitely and on then the bucket list. I'd love to hear Steve Naive talk about, you know, when you decide to pee all over a song, basically, and how you know it's going to sound so good. You know, yeah. he, he sort of runs amok on those tunes, and it works It works all the time. Oh, it does. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then Ben Mont, of course, that crazy, brilliant brain. I just want to hear him extemporize for a while. Absolutely. So. Damn managers <laughs> and their gatekeeper behaviors. Yeah. <laughs> and then if, if you ask me my conception of, of heaven... It would be just that we all sit around and listen to Bjork talk. So, just in terms of in terms of just getting someone to talk for an hour, I think she would be at the top of all of my list. Is it based on content or tone or both? You got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. No, good stuff. 
Um, and, and when you are, um, your idea of heaven, if you can only take five albums to heaven, what ones are they going to be, Josh? Um, how am I playing them? Oh, well, let's assume vinyl. Like in heaven, <laughs> I think it's all vinyl up there. On, on the harp, <laughs> surely on the harp. Yeah, right. Like... Oh, their, their interpretations, sure. Um, I'm, I'm going to cop out and just say and just say hopefully that I have not heard those five albums yet. Hopefully there's still five brilliant albums that will answer that like question it. when we do this again in, you know, in 50 years. That's a nice, no, good answer. Um, I like it a lot. And because it, it is a somewhat redundant question too, but on a whole bunch of contexts and you've just given one, um, we've had a previous guest that's gone, I just don't listen to albums. I just listen to playlists and singles. So, yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> very valid josh can't yeah. thank you enough for for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure um and i know I, I can't wait for the new album and i'll be continuing to play you know spotify is making you millions like the rest of us so the least i can yeah, do is, is. is contribute to that <laughs> it is uh it is i actually we we cleaned the house today and in the couch i found my last um spotify uh royalties uh there were a couple there were a couple quarters that we found underneath yeah. <laughs> And so uh, I prized those. They're up on the wall now. Yeah, I don't know why I bother even. I still log in and check once a month. and go, oh, 17 cents. Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for, uh, thanks for reaching out. Our pleasure. So there we go. Paul, always a pleasure talking with Josh. He's uh, certainly an articulate guy. Yeah, that was really good, and I really like the way Josh thinks about music, and it was great to be able to pick his brain and get some of his thoughts about it. So, yeah, a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this chat for ages. Yeah, no, same. And um, for our Patreon supporters and and perhaps a fair way down the track for our, our general listeners as well, not the general it's like general admission. You're still in the front row, guys. Um, we, we do have a bonus uh, bonus episode with Josh talking everything Pink Floyd and, and Tribute Act. So um, that'll be released in the near future as well. So yeah, huge thanks to Josh for taking taking the time. Um, and also thank you, our very valued listeners, for, for taking the time as well. We'll be back again in a fortnight or so, but just a reminder, you can keep in touch via a few means. Our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboardchronicles. Uh, and on Twitter at the keyboard chr1. If you like good old-fashioned email, then drop us a line at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. If you'd like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account where for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. And a big shout-out to our current um, Patreon supporters. Um, I do want to make um, special mention of Greg Chance, who runs a brilliant, and Paul, you can chip in here, a brilliant um, called Chrome Users Group on Facebook. Yes, Greg is a great man, a real gentleman, and that that Chrome users group is very cool as someone who is a big advocate of the Chrome. Yes, no, and, and huge kudos to Greg for building it up. I know he's built it up to a couple of thousand um, you know, active users, and um, that's no mean feat. It shows a passion for an instrument. So, yeah, love having you on board, Greg, and really appreciate your input to date. Um, so yeah, and a huge thank you again to Paul for joining me. I know you're back off uh, around the countryside here and there, but we'll catch up soon. 
Yeah, can't wait. Thanks again for inviting me to be part of it, David. Thanks, everyone, as always, and see you back here next episode.